the celebration. Lord, I just pray that you'll speak to us um, powerfully and you'll help us to uh, live for Jesus also tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, I did the 10K Bridge to Brisbane run. It's amazing, I know. I would have preferred to drive it instead. But if you've ever run the Bridge to Brisbane, you know that the first 2Ks go up and down the Gateway Bridge. It seems daunting, but I reckon that's actually the easiest part of the race. You see, everyone's pumped up. They're ready to go. They're filled with adrenaline, and everyone just powers through the bridge. I actually tried to train the week leading up, and I always got tired after the first K. But on, sa- on that Sunday morning, I had no problems at all. So I reckon the bridge is easy, and the real race, the hard yards, really lie in the 8Ks after the bridge when you hit the flats, because that's when the adrenaline wears out, when your legs start to feel it and your cramps begin to set in. And that's when the question begs in the race, will you last in the long run? And how will you last the race? And that's kind of where we're up to in Nehemiah at the moment. You see, we've gone a long way since the beginning of the book. The wall's been rebuilt in chapter 6, and the people renew their faith in God in chapters 8 to 10. The people, they're back, and they're back in the land under God. They're both momentous occasions, and, but both probably riding on the excitement of getting back into the land, just like running up and down the bridge. See, I, I think the real test still lies ahead for God's people. The questions of, will they last this godly high? And how will they last? It's like when someone comes to Christ, it's a great occasion, but the question is, will they keep following Jesus? And we also need to keep an eye out on chapter 13, as Brendan mentioned last week, because one moment they're on a high, and they're telling God, we'll do this, we'll do that. And then three chapters later, they just screw up big time. So tonight, I want to cover both chapters 11 and 12. And in these chapters, most of it seems pretty silent and insignificant, and usually gets glossed over. But... I reckon between the lines and the lists, they actually stay on the high. They make good moves. They outline good things that help them keep going as God's people. So tonight we'll look at how the people keep on this godly high and how how this passage applies to us through Jesus on this side of the cross. I've tied these two chapters through one particular thread tonight, and it's the thread of sacrifice. Because you see, what you sacrifice for reveals who your heart is serving. If I woke up at 3 a.m. last week to watch the Apple event, and if I pre-ordered my iPhone 6 Plus at 5.01 p.m. on Friday afternoon, and if I end up lining up on Thursday night for a new iPhone, and if my name is James Hohouse, it's pretty obvious that I'm an Apple fanboy because of all the sacrifices that I make. Because what you sacrifice for reveals who your heart is serving. And I think that's what you find in the beginning of chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, have a look with me. Verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, 
and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. If you remember back in chapter 7, verses 4, the walls are completed, but the city is completely empty. So we pick up here in chapter 11 with uh, this effort to repopulate the holy city. But the funny thing is (laughs) that the people don't want to live in Jerusalem. You see, this walled city, this holy city, it wasn't the best place to live. It was dangerous because armies actually targeted these cities for their money and resources, and there was no land in these walled cities for crops or herds. And the commute to these rural areas uh, to, to actually do the work would take even longer than our Brisbane busway. It was so much better to live outside the city, where you have heaps of land and little fear of being targeted by enemies. So what, what happened was they cast lots away of leaving it up to God's will to figure out who stayed and who went out. And on top of that in verse 2, it seems that others actually volunteered to live in this city. So here we see these guys who moved to Jerusalem. They sacrificed their preferences for God's plan. You see, there was no advantage of living in Jerusalem there was no land, no safety, no comfort, no prosperity. There was only to live in God's city, this insignificant and unattractive place. But it's to be where God dwelled and God was at work. These guys, they sacrificed their preferences to live in Jerusalem. They put God's city ahead of their own. And as insignificant as this sacrifice may seem, we have this massive list in chapter 11, and I could have got Sheraton to read it. But it's here to preserve and to honor these people. These guys, if you read through the names, they all took the tough road. They they chose not to live it easy. And we read their names today. All through the chapter, we remember this life, this family. They sacrificed their preferences, their peace, and prosperity to live for the glory of God. One commentator says that this is a manifestation of pre-Christ, Christ-likeness. They were acting in Christ's example even before the incarnation of Jesus. It's the narrow road, the narrow gate, a living sacrifice found in the Old Testament. And that's why the people bless them in verse 2. Well, let me ask you, Are we these sort of people in our church? Does this description fit you? Ready to do the unglamorous and the insignificant things for God's glory. Setting aside your comfort, your preferences, your dreams for what God's church needs. Putting God's kingdom above all things, whether it's that party, that sports game, that assessment, that pay rise, that night off, that dream house. When something clashes with God's program, whether it's church, life group, or serving, or leading, what gives way? Church, or the other thing? What you sacrifice for reveals who your heart is serving. And in chapter 11, we're reminded of people 
who sacrifice their preferences for God's plan and God's glory. And as we read on more lists, we're also reminded about the sacrifice of profession. How did they keep going as God's people? Well, some of them had given up their vocation and quite literally their entire lives to the service of God. You see, the Levites, they were a whole tribe set apart for serving the temple. And in chapter 12, verses 1 to 26, there's another list, and it's dedicated to these guys, the Levites. Verses 1 to 9 list the priests and Levites when Zerubbabel returned to the land. It goes on, 10 and 11 is a list of a succession of high priests. And 12 to 26 lists generations of Levites and priests, all down to Nehemiah's time. These guys, they serve the Lord with their whole profession, their whole lives. Whether it was part-time, two weeks in the temple every year, or full-time in the city. And their names are also immortalized in God's word for their faithful service and sacrifice over generations for the glory of God. Well, we don't have Levites or temple priests anymore, but we can definitely use our professions or our jobs for God's glory. And the obvious way, the first way, is full-time. I wonder if God's asking any of you to sacrifice your profession for God's glory, to, to live for Jesus in your profession. Maybe it's that big move to Bible college or uh, going to full-time mission or pastoral ministry, or maybe it's something else. I was at an open night last week uh, and for college, and our principal told us that there's a massive shortage of Christian ministers in Brisbane. We can see it here at home in Sunnybank. We need pastors. We're always talking about pastors, people who teach Christ faithfully week in and week out. And the facts say right now today that there are not enough pastors coming out in colleges to fill in the vacancies that are in Brisbane. And if you think we have it hard in Sunnybank, there are thousands of unreached people groups all around the world. They're crying out for cross-cultural workers, crying out for people to tell them about Jesus. Spurgeon talks about mission and says that the question of should I go is probably the wrong question for us to ask. The real question is, what's stopping me from going? At SDBC, it's great, I think. Uh, we've seen Lynette and Joel go out on short term. Uh, the Lynches are about to head out. We have guys like Lloyd Nicholas, Jeff Gunton, and Clive hail from Sunnybank, and that's amazing. We've seen Brendan step up over the past year, and that's been really great to see. And God willing, a couple more people are setting their sights on college. But what about the others? What about you? What's God been saying to you? Whether it's full-time ministry, cross-cultural mission work, short-term, maybe it's just to reclaim some time in your life and dedicate it to God's word. What sacrifice are you making? My housemate's a civil engineer, and he's been working in main roads for more than eight years. Uh, he's a smart guy. He's Asian. He calls the shots in some of the projects on the M1 when you're going down to the coast. And he could be earning thousands more, probably double his pay if he went to a private firm. 
but he's chosen not to. Why? Because his job gives him flexibility at work to serve God the best. You see, he serves as a deacon in his church. He heads up youth. He plays bass every three weeks, and he's on a a billion pastoral committees. He works full-time, but his whole life is focused on serving God and making Christ known in his local church. It's a tough decision sometimes. That's why it's called a sacrifice. I spent five years studying architecture, and I never practiced as a registered architect. I never got to sign off on any drawings. There's no buildings with my name on it, just parts of a pretty ugly house in Raby Bay, and some details on some office parks if you drive down Compton Road. That's my architecture legacy. It's a sacrifice. It's tough. You see, Paul says that we're to be living sacrifices for Jesus, and that definitely includes our profession. And as we look on, the passage goes on and talks about what's in their pockets, their their pay packets or their money. How do they keep going as God's people? Well, they set up their old tithing system for people to sacrifice financially to God's work. Uh, Jumping to chapter 12, verses 44 to 47. Let's read verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storeroom, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather, them in, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. These guys, they actually gave their tithe and While doing it, they were so happy. They were so happy that they even rejoiced over the stewards who were collecting the offering. And the New Testament echoes the same thing, 2 Corinthians. It says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. To tithe, to sacrifice financially, and to be cheerful. So the question I just want to put out there is, are we sacrificing financially for God's kingdom? And is this something that we do grudgingly or cheerfully? Christ sacrificed his life for us, but are we willing to sacrifice our pay packets to him? Or is our bank account untouchable to God? I'm just putting this out there because this is a really tough issue that we all need to weigh up and think about practically. As a uni student in my late teens, I put this off for years. I made excuses. I was poor, I had no job, and youth allowance doesn't really count. But one day, I stopped running away. I crunched the numbers until I squirmed, and I couldn't afford UQ pizza anymore every week. And then I locked it in. And when I think about it, I've come to trust God more and to be glad that I can contribute financially to God's work here at Sunnybank. I've got a friend who likes to crunch numbers about giving, and he tells me that given the numbers of workers who attend our church, using the minimum wage as a guide, we should be comfortably meeting our budget every week. But we don't. It's in the bulletin every week, 70, 80, 90%, 
once in a while we hit it. My counter friend tells me that going by the numbers, we should meet it easily and easily increase our budget by at least 25%. That's like four to five pastors or full-time missionaries that we can support 100%. To keep on going as followers of Jesus, Jesus has to be Lord over everything, including our finances. So let me just put it out there. Do you give to God in a way that it becomes a sacrifice, that it hurts your pockets, that you have to somewhat declare your dependency on God financially? And if you're in high school or you're in uni, I really encourage you to put this in place right now, sacrificial giving, so that when you work full-time, you're ready. You're already in this tithing system. Following Jesus is a sacrifice, and he says, you can't serve God and money, so will you serve God? Even sacrifice your finances, all the money that he's given you for his glory. And finally, following Jesus also involves a sacrifice of praise. How do we keep living for God? Well, we need to praise him, to rejoice in him, to find joy in him. I went to Disneyland when I was in grade seven, and Disneyland is often called the happiest place on earth. Well, I reckon this celebration in chapter 12 would give Mickey Mouse a run for his money because it reads like a Jewish Disneyland parade. It's not a formal, pompous royal occasion, but it's loud, it's exuberant. It's like an action-packed musical. And what we find behind this celebration is great joy, raw praise, sacrifice to the one who deserves all joy and praise. In verses 27 to 30, the priestly band, they gather in Jerusalem for music practice and they purify themselves. They set themselves apart for God. Because you see, this celebration that we read of, it's not about the people. It wasn't even really about the wall. It's primarily about God. Today, we commission Andrew and Beck Lynch for their work in Vanuatu. And it's not really about them either. It's about God's hand over them. God's work through them and God's will to be done through them. And it's the same here with the wall. It's not about the wall. It's about God. The Jews here are praising God. And that's exactly what they do as we read on. Verses 31 to 43. Uh, it was read before and it illustrates this massive celebration of joy to God. And we see again it's not really about the wall. The wall's built, it's being dedicated, but it's dedicated to God. All the focus, all the attention, it's all praise to God. And let's look, let's look at what happens. Verse 31, they gather on top of the wall and they split into two choirs. Verses 32 to 37, the first choir is led by Hashiah and moves in one direction around the city on the walls. And then in 38 and 39, Nehemiah and the second choir, they go the other way around the city on the walls. They're both making music, they're singing back and forth, celebrating and giving praise to God. You see, it's not about the choirs, it's not about the music. They just did their bit. It's all focused on God. And in verses 40 to 43, 
both choirs, they gather together in the temple in this climactic moment in the celebration, and they praise God together. They sang, they offered sacrifices, they partied so hard that their neighboring towns could even hear their joy. And this is what is highlighted in the passage, joy. Look at verse 43. Five times in this verse, it refers to joy or rejoicing. Five times, it's making a point. The people were giving a sacrifice of praise and joy to God. And as Christians today, we have more things to rejoice about than anyone else on earth. More than what the Jews here in Nehemiah ever had to rejoice in. You see, they rejoiced, they partied hard because of God's faithfulness seen in a wall, in stones, brick and mortar. But we rejoice over someone and something much greater. You see, we've seen God's ultimate demonstration of love and faithfulness. In Christ, God has assured us of salvation, redemption, relationship, and life. Even though we stuff up, just like the Jews are going to stuff up in the next chapter, it's all about God's grace, not our work, but our trust in him. It's the promise in the words that we've sung tonight. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the joy, that's the promise and the hope that the Jews look forward to in God's faithfulness. And that's the joy that we hold on to today. That no matter what's going on in our lives, whether it's family, relational, work-related, health, ministry, yeah, I'm feeling down. I've been kicked in the guts. Nothing's going right. My life's a mess. But you know what? There's joy in my heart because of Jesus, and I can still praise God. Because whatever's going on, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm protected by the saving work of Jesus. When you come to church on Sunday nights, when's the last time you've experienced joy in what God's done for you in Christ? When's the last time you've left church thinking, I rejoiced in God, I praised him for the salvation he's given me in Christ? I'll be really honest with you, and maybe some of you are in the same boat as me. There are lots of times when I leave church on Sundays, and I don't leave praising God. I don't leave with joy. I leave thinking, I wish the music sounded better. The songs had more Jesus in them. There's no joy. I wish the person speaking or the, leading, the guy leading just didn't take as long as he did and just got to the point. There's no joy. I wish I didn't talk to this person or that person after service because he or she was weird or a jerk. No joy. And I wish for the morning service that we'd taken less than 30 minutes to figure out where lunch is. No joy. Just complaints, critiques, and criticisms. But no joy. Or I leave, or I leave with joy because of things other than God, like seeing my friends that awesome supper, or just relief that the service is over. So when's the last time you've left church 
full of joy because of Jesus. When you've left church praising God, that you've understood his word, with that last song about Jesus in your mind and on your lips, when you want to tell others about what God has been doing in your life, when's the last time you've left church full of joy because of Jesus? And as we read of the joy in verse 43, it's an infectious joy. The sacrifice of praise had a great impact. It's like driving past Suncorp Stadium when there's a concert or a game going on. You hear the roars, the cheers, the excitement, and you wonder, what's going on there? And that's probably like what's happening in verse 33. The sounds of joy and praise, they traveled over the walls and to the neighboring towns, and they're asking, what's that? That's Jerusalem, and they're having a good time. Can you imagine cars passing through church, hearing the joy that we have in Christ, and our neighbors, instead of complaining about the noise, uh, they want to hear more about this joy that we have in Jesus. And the guys driving past, they park around church. The, the guys, our neighbors, they sit on their front patios just to hear God's people, just to hear the praise, to see what's going on, to ask, who is this Jesus? What a result of sacrifice of praise. What a witness we can be to our neighbors and to our community with great joy. So this passage seems to highlight the people's sacrifices as they continue to live for God. A sacrifice of preferences, profession, from their pockets, and a sacrifice of praise. But I find as we finish tonight that there's an uneasiness in these two chapters. Because one, we know the people are going to stuff up in the next chapter. They don't continue living for God. And there's an uneasiness in this celebration, I think, because they rejoice. But think about it. There's no king in the city. You see, there's lots of references to David, even a mention of Zerubbabel, who's in the line of David. The people settle to areas that are conquered under David's rule. The instruments of David, the house of David, the city of David. But God's king is sorely absent in this celebration. You see, I think Nehemiah pushes us forward to a hope of a true king, a king who lives and is with us, a king who protects us better than any city wall can, who gives us more peace and more hope than any wall could offer, a king that we can really celebrate and party about. It's our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He sacrificed his life for us, and he calls us to take up our cross to follow him, to be living sacrifices for Jesus. Why? Why should I sacrifice my preferences, my profession, my money, and my praise? It's because of the hope, the promise, the grace that the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, has shown us on the cross. You see, we don't sacrifice ourselves for a city, for walls, for bricks and stones, but we live sacrificially for a king, our saviour king, the Lord Jesus Christ. What you sacrifice reveals 
who your heart is serving. So to finish off tonight in the words of Paul, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to keep living for Jesus, whether it's in our preferences and priorities, our careers and jobs, our wealth and finances, or our praise and joy. Please work in us to sacrifice all of these for your kingdom's work, to live for Jesus and to make Jesus known. Take my life and let it be, everything, all of me, Here I am, here we are. Use us as living sacrifices for your glory. Lord Jesus, be our cornerstone, the center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand with us again. Let's bring one more sacrifice of praise to God tonight. Yeah.